We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 14. We shall read some verses from chapter 14. Revelation, chapter 14, reading from verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. We shall end our reading here. May God bless to us this reading of his word. We come to particularly consider, as enabled, the record of John regarding these three angels. The angel mentioned in verse 6, and then the second angel in verse 8, and then the third angel in verse 9. Now they are all connected while they are uh, each one delivering their own particular message. At the same time, they are all related, as it were, conveying but one message. Now, we have to remember where we've come from in chapters 12 and particularly chapter 13, where we have such a dark, dark picture painted of human society and the mighty, terrifying powers of the kingdom of darkness, the satanic trinity. We have looked at the beginning of chapter 14 to the glorious sight 
of the true lamb, God's lamb, with his redeemed around him. And uh, they are rejoicing and they are singing in triumph with the lamb on Mount Zion. Now we are to consider what follows this uh, in verse 4 of uh, chapter 14. We have a description beginning of those who were the redeemed from the earth, those who were with the Lamb following him in obedience, in loyalty. They follow him whithersoever he goeth. And they are devoted to their Redeemer. Now, this is in spite of what is described in chapter 13. When we would read that chapter, if we didn't read anything else, we would think, well, surely Christ can't have many followers. Christ can't possibly have many in that situation, in those circumstances, who are willing to follow him whithersoever he goeth, who are willing to take up their cross and patiently follow him and deny themselves. But when we come to the part of the chapter 14 that we've read, we are brought to see why there are any redeemed. And it is all because of the divine mercy and long-suffering of God himself. It is because God is slow to anger, and he is of great mercy and his patience with the sons of men continues and endures. And thus, we have in verse 6, the record of John, he says, I saw another angel. Now, what are the angels? We've looked at them, who they are, what their mission is. They are sent forth for the benefit of the heirs of salvation. They serve the church of Jesus Christ. They serve the glorious Christ who is the head of the church, serving his purposes to bring his elect unto himself. Now here is one of the angels flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. What a scene this is. Now we have to understand we're still in the language of symbol. And here is this angel as the messenger, that's what the angels are, they're the messengers, and he is flying in the midst of the heaven with the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell in the earth. What condition is the earth in? What condition are the men in the earth in to whom this gospel is to be preached. According to chapter 13, the power of the uh, beast that arises out 
of the earth is the same as that of the beast that rises out of the sea. And both these beasts have their power from Satan himself. And the whole power that belongs to them, it is directed in one direction to cause men on the earth not to worship God, not to follow Christ whithersoever he goeth, but instead to worship the beast. And those who do worship the beast are secure. They are given privileges that those who do not are denied. They are given a mark on their forehead or their hands so that they're identified as the worshippers of the beast. They are identified as those engaged in his service. And they ha- the beast has power over all the earth to cause this to happen. But here in chapter 14, we have the glorious scene. The lamb in the midst of the throne is in Mount Zion. The lamb that was slain from the uh, before the foundation of the world. Here he is. And as we said last week, not one is missing. They're all there. He's redeemed. They're all with him. But notice why. They are there because they have been redeemed. A Redeemer has been provided for them. And that Redeemer has been made known in the everlasting gospel. And here we have the scene, in spite of all the wickedness, and in spite of all the satanic power, arrayed against God and his Christ. What do we see? The long-suffering, the patience, the forbearance of God himself still heralding forth the everlasting gospel. When we go over to the book of Exodus, Moses, you'll remember, desired an understanding of just who God was in chapter 34 of Exodus God reveals himself. He reveals himself in such a way as he can be known. And his character and his attributes acknowledged. What do we read? Uh, Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is how God would have himself known, how he would have himself identified. He proclaimed his name. It wasn't left to Moses to figure out what his name was. It wasn't left for generations to come to try and figure out who is God? What is God like? God revealed himself. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed or announced the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He proclaimed this. Then he goes on. 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. I am a forgiving God. I am a gracious, long-suffering God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He proclaimed this. I am one who forgives sin. I am one who reveals and makes known mercy to those who have sinned against me. And yet, he goes on, that I will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, I will forgive sin. But I will not clear the guilty. I forgive sin for a reason. I just don't forgive sin because man would like me to do it. I forgive sin when sin is repented of. But if it is not repented of, then I will by no means clear the guilty. That's how I deal with men. That's what I'm proclaiming. Let men think what they will. Let them imagine what they want. This is how I will be known. I am long-suffering. I am very patient. I'm very merciful. I do forgive sin. But if sinners will refuse my mercy, and will despise my long-suffering. I will by no means clear them. I will not justify them. I certainly will not forgive them. But he goes on visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Fathers, are you listening? Visiting the iniquities or the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. What was the reaction of Moses? Moses made haste. Moses made haste in the presence of such a glorious being. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He didn't complain. He didn't seek any explanation. He hasted because of what God proclaimed. And he bowed in worship before this great God who is a just God and a holy God. But he is a merciful God and a gracious God and he does forgive sins. But if no forgiveness is sought, then God will not clear the guilty and he will visit not only their iniquities upon themselves, but even upon generations rising. 
I sometimes wish that the church would pay more attention to these solemn realities. This is not a God to be trifled with. This is a God to be feared. And Moses knew that and he made haste to get on his face before God. Now you can go through the Psalms here and there and you can see we often sing it the communion time the Psalm 103 how long suffering God is and his people you see when they come to the Lord's table they appreciate weren't for his long suffering and his forbearance and his patience they wouldn't even be at the table this is the characteristic of the glorious God who in the midst of all this satanic darkness and satanic activity is sending out his glorious gospel. Now, we might just consider something of this gospel. Remember what Paul said when he was writing to the Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is God's power to save men. Now, look at the origin of this gospel. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell in the earth. Right away you see what the mind of heaven is, what is being revealed here. The gospel is to be preached. It's to be preached. It is a gospel that is not to be hidden. It is a gospel that is to be proclaimed. But where does it originate? Does it originate with the angels? Does it originate with men? This gospel has its origin in heaven. Now that then should make us appreciate what a glorious gospel it is. It doesn't arise in the minds of men. It isn't the result of a conference by the world's intellects. It has its origin in heaven. And it is God who gives it. And it is God who sends this angel with it. Therefore, there's nothing earthly about it. That's what we need to remember in this day of ours. The gospel has nothing earthly about it. It is heavenly. Its origin is in heaven. Its roots are in the heart and the mind of God. And men think today they are clever enough to take the gospel and edit it 
or manipulate it or redefine it or whatever. The gospel that Paul preached, what did he say of it when he was writing to the Galatians? And he is confirming his apostleship and his right to preach the glorious gospel in chapter 1 of Galatians when he says, Cursed is anyone who preaches any other gospel, even if it's an angel. He says in verse 11 of Galatians 1, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Little wonder it's rejected. Little wonder the natural man doesn't want it because it is not after man. For I neither received it of man Neither was I taught, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was making it very clear. The gospel that I preach, it has a heavenly origin. And that's why no reason to be ashamed of it, but put all his confidence in it. But you will see something else. It is a royal and authoritative gospel. Where did it come from? Well, we go back to the opening of the this part of the revelation after the message to the seven churches, each of the seven messages. And what is our minds, where our minds directed to? Chapter uh, 4. Verse 1, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne. And from then on, everything we see is controlled from that throne. It is the throne of the Lamb, but it is the throne of eternal glory. And you see everything around the throne, every personage around the throne contributing to the service from that throne and to the glory that surrounded it. And here is an angel commissioned from that throne, commissioned with a glorious gospel to men to be preached to be declared, to be proclaimed to them that dwell on the earth. That's the purpose of it. The Lamb in the midst of the throne, the glorious, eternal Son of God, purposes from his throne to send out against the opposition of Satan's kingdom, the glorious gospel of redeeming grace. Now, you go back to the chapter that we read in Mark's gospel, chapter 16. You have (coughs) there, and it's connected undoubtedly with what we read in Matthew chapter 28. But in Mark chapter 16... (coughs) 
Jesus, after his resurrection, met with his eleven disciples, who were, of course, to be his apostles. And what did he say to them? Verse 15 of Mark 16. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world. There are no boundaries, no borders. Preach the gospel everywhere. And then preach it to every creature, great and small, rich and poor. The one thing they need is the gospel. So go and preach the gospel to them. But it is so often overlooked. That verse is quoted in isolation to what follows it. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. There will be two responses to that gospel. And there will be two outcomes. To, that, to those responses. Jesus is saying to these apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What's going to happen when you do it? Some are going to believe and they're going to be saved. Others are not going to believe. And they're going to be damned. That's what's going to happen among men. Where the gospel will be preached. Some that hear it will be saved. Some that hear it will end up damned. Jesus didn't mince his words. He made it very, very clear to these apostles what was going to happen. And then verse 19 of this same chapter we read, So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Where is he? He's enthroned. He sat on the right hand of God. He's enthroned. Now, what does he tell uh, the apostles as recorded in Matthew's gospel in the chapter 28? He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm exalted. I have supreme uh, power. Go ye therefore. The gospel is sent from me to poor sinners. The gospel is sent from an exalted Christ. The gospel is sent from the throne of an exalted Christ. And look at this, coming back to chapter 16 of Mark. 
verse 20, they went forth. He sat on the throne. They went forth. He sat on the throne in control, ordering all his affairs and all the affairs of the kingdom. He sat on the throne. They went forth. And they preached as they'd been commissioned. They preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. I remember what he said. He went with them. He, we're told, worked with them. Now, you might think, surely if he is working with them, everybody's going to be saved, surely. If he's working with them, does he not have the power to save everyone? See what Jesus said? You see how serious it is? Do you see how solemn a matter it is to reject the gospel and not to believe it? You see the justification and being damned if you do not believe the gospel? Because here, the Lord worked with them confirming the word. Confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now, when we come back to Revelation, the angel from the throne occupied by the glorious, exalted Redeemer flies in the midst of the heaven with the everlasting gospel to preach to men. It is a royal gospel It carries in it all the authority of the throne of heaven. There is nothing earthly about it. There is nothing of man within it. It is solely God's means for the salvation of perishing men. And it is to be preached in the kingdom that appears to be under the control of Satan. Now, what else do we see about this gospel? It is a royal and authoritative gospel to be declared to men everywhere. And you see the apostles going out to do that. They went preaching everywhere. Now, what did they think they were doing? What did they imagine was the mission they were on? Go with me back to what Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second epistle that he writes to them. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 19, to wit, well, verse 18, to get the connection All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us, given to us the ministry 
of reconciliation. What's the gospel all about? The reconciling of sinners to a holy God and the reconciling of a holy God to wretched sinners. And when they are reconciled, what do they do? They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They serve in in obedience. Now Paul goes on, verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, Now then, in the light of this, we are ambassadors for Christ because the word of reconciliation wasn't made up by us. It issued forth from the eternal throne. It came from the exalted Christ himself. And we are the ambassadors from that throne. We bring this message from that throne. Remember what Paul said. How often he spoke of himself in such defacing terms. He said he was the chief of sinners. He said he was not worthy even to be called a saint. The least of all saints, he said. Couldn't think of any Christian anywhere. Was more unworthy than himself. Ah, but when it comes to this, it's different. What did he say to the Romans in chapter 11? I magnify my office. I don't magnify my person. The things that once were gained to me, I have long ago counted but loss. I count them even as dung. But he says, I magnify my office. I don't magnify myself. I don't magnify my gifts. I don't magnify my graces. But I magnify my office. What's my office? When he's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says there that he is Christ's ambassador in bonds. But here he says... We are ambassadors for Christ as though God, as though God did beseech you by us. Now, what do you think God would speak like if he really determines the salvation of sinners. And he is so determined 
to save sinners. That he commissions men officially appointing them to be ambassadors to go and represent him and bring the gospel of reconciliation to sinners. Do you think that then since they're speaking as the ambassadors in God's name, be ye reconciled to God, that they stand up with their arms folded? And they look very serious. And they say, you know, it would be very nice if you would come to Christ. It would just be wonderful if you would accept the offer of salvation. They are ambassadors to plead in God's name as God's voice. And God is in deadly earnest. He is in deadly earnest. He is serious about men's souls. He is serious about the salvation of perishing men. How many must be misrepresenting God? in the pathetic way that they speak to sinners on their way to a lost eternity. How many sit today all over the place, nice religious services, with no idea that they are on the brink of eternity. And they are on the brink of being lost forever without Christ. Paul says, we are ambassadors as though God did beseech you. What's Paul saying? God beseeches sinners. As though God beseeches you by us. God beseeches. And I have heard men stand in pulpits supposed to be evangelical, supposed to be evangelistic in their, in their ministry. Well, there's very little beseeching. And yet they claim they're representing God. And God is beseeching. And the angel flies through the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel to preach to man and the earth. The beast out of the earth is preaching to them. The beast out of the earth is seeking to compel men to follow the beast and worship the beast out of the sea, and together to worship the dragon himself. But in the midst of it, God has his ambassadors to beseech men. Do not devote yourselves to this satanic worship and this satanic gospel, but turn 
to be reconciled unto God. Now, what else do we see about this gospel? It is a royal, authoritative gospel, but what does uh, the word tell us about it? It is to be preached to them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, it is a universal gospel. There's only one gospel. There aren't several gospels. There isn't a gospel for this nation and a different gospel for that nation because their culture's different, their history's different. There isn't a gospel for the Chinese and a gospel for the English and a gospel for the Germans and a gospel for the Americans. One gospel from the throne of God sent forth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And it's the same gospel that Paul was preaching that is still being preached today throughout the earth. However dark things may be, we must rejoice that the gospel is still being preached, that sinners are still being converted under it in the nations of the earth. How sad it is that in the West, in the Western world, the nations that have had the gospel are now trampling on it, are now rejecting it and despising it. But in other parts, the gospel is proving to be the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Are we earnestly praying for the progress of that gospel? Or do we think, well, we just pray for certain people. We just pray for certain ministers. We just pray for certain of the Lord's servants. We're not interested in the rest of the world. We're not concerned about anybody else except our own little, our own little disciples. The gospel was intended by the occupant of the throne of glory to be preached in every nation, to every kindred within the nation, in every tongue, to every people. But then you will see something further. It is here referred to as the everlasting gospel. It's an indestructible gospel. It's everlasting. And it will outlast the gospel of the beast out of the sea and the gospel of the beast, out of the earth, it will outlast them. It is indestructible. Aren't you glad that you have learned something of that gospel? Aren't you glad that in the 21st century, when men and their thousands and women and young people are turning away 
despising it, mocking it, seeking to undermine it, they're bound to feel. Oh, the learned scientist can come along and he can produce supposedly evidence that there was no supreme, intelligent creator behind anything. It all just happened out of nothing by chance. And he may infect the minds of the young and corrupt them and pollute them so that they follow the beast whithersoever he goes. When the saints are following the Savior, whithersoever he goes, this poor generation is following the beast and is teaching whithersoever he leads them into darkness and ignorance. But here is the gospel that comes from this throne, the gospel that will outlast every form of false teaching. It is an indestructible gospel. And that's why we still have it. You think of all the attempts that have been made generation by generation to wipe out every particle of that gospel. The endurance of Christians in communistic countries in the past what they endured because they adhered to the gospel and communism couldn't destroy it and atheism hasn't been able to destroy it and Romanism hasn't been able to destroy it. They have attacked it, they've corrupted it, they've undermined it Yet the gospel still remains. And today, how many thousands, millions across the face of the earth, right round the globe for 24 hours, are still adhering to that gospel. They're still believing it. And the angels are still rejoicing as poor sinners are brought to a saving knowledge of the one who is the very heart of the gospel, Christ himself. It is a glorious, indestructible gospel. But then, as we've already pointed out, it is a very divisive gospel. It brings division. Jesus told the disciples, some will believe it, and they will be saved. Others will not believe it, and they will be damned. What will it be for those under the gospel in this congregation? Because some will believe, and they'll be saved. Others will hear, but they will not believe. 
Does that mean, well, God will just leave them aside? They'll be the ones who'll suffer because they won't partake of the great blessings of the gospel. And they will lose out. No, no. They will be damned. They will be damned. Now what happens here? When the gospel is to be preached, the angel with the everlasting gospel to be preached, what does he say? Verse 7 of Revelation 14, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of waters. Every last member of the human race is going to one day, if they will not do it now, they are going to worship the lamb in the midst of the throne. And the gospel is calling men to acknowledge God and to worship him, not the beast. Oh, in chapter 13, how many are devoting themselves to the worship of the beast and the beast that had the wound and was healed again, the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet directing men to worship the antichrist and reject the true Christ, hear what is the angel saying. Worship him that made heaven and earth the sea and the fountains thereof. What did Paul tell the Philippians the day is coming? When every knee shall bow and every tongue, every tongue confess that he is Lord. They're all going to acknowledge it. Whether they like it or not, God will require everyone made in Adam in his image to acknowledge him, to bow before him, and they will confess with their tongues that he is Lord. They won't be saying, oh, man is Lord. They will be saying, he is Lord. What are we told? The the hour of of his judgment has come. Fear God. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And the secret things will be made known and no covering up of anything. It will all be brought out into the open the day of his judgment. Then there follows another angel. This first angel is calling on men to be reconciled to God, to worship God. Abandon the worship of the beast and the false prophet and so on and devoting themselves to the worship of the dragon. Worship God. They're being directed to the truth. They're being directed 
to do what is right. But they don't all do it. What did Jesus say? Some will not believe, and they will be damned. So we come to verse 8. There's another angel following. What does this angel do say? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, when we come to chapter 17, we shall go further into this great city of Babylon, what it symbolizes, what it represents. In the scriptures, of course, you go to the Old Testament, you have historic Babylon. Babylon was a real city. It was a historical city. It was a material place of abode, Babylon, historically. But then also when we go through the scriptures, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, you have Babylon Babylon, uh, metaphorically. Not the real material Babylon, but Babylon represented in conditions that prevailed among men. The great Babylon historically had taken God's people into captivity as punishment for their sins. And again and again, you see the church in bondage, backsliding, departing from the truth, and brought then into the clutches of the world's Babylon to afflict them and bring them back to repentance. But we also have Babylon spiritually. And why there is a connection between Babylon spiritually as well as metaphorically, I believe that there is a a difference. Because Babylon spiritually refers to the condition of the church when the ungodly world is no longer outside, but is inside. Babylon in the Old Testament. You find the church in captivity. And the children of Judah are carried off, Daniel and his companions, they're carried off into Babylon. And there they suffer. There they're afflicted. Although God blessed them, he didn't forsake them. But when we come to Babylon spiritually, we find not the church in captivity in the world's Babylon, but Babylon has come into the church and captivated the church in that way. And that's what we will find happens here in the visions of John. That's what he's depicting. And then, of course, you have Babylon, the great mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon. There's a mystery about this Babylon that John sees. There's a mystery about this Babylon. 
the mysterious way that Babylon has of taking men in the world into mental and spiritual bondage. And the angel, the second angel, is saying, Babylon is fallen. Oh, the Lamb, he's in the midst of Mount Zion. He's not falling. He's standing. But Babylon, that has done so much harm and damage, is now fallen. You go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 21 and to Jeremiah chapter 51, and you'll see the decrees of God against Babylon historically because of the treatment that had been meted out to God's ancient people. But here in Revelation, it is spiritual Babylon that falls. And then the third angel falls. Here is a solemn, solemn declaration from this third angel. Remember what we're talking about. The gospel that divides. The gospel that divides. The angel followed saying, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same, the same shall drink of the Wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, into the cup of his indignation. Don't we pray sometimes to God that in his wrath he would remember mercy? Look at what we have here. This is wrath where there's no mercy. There's no mixture. It is, we are told, the wrath of God without mixture. It is pure, holy, divine, justified wrath. Not one particle of mercy. It's without mixture. And he that has the mark of the beast or his name. He's gone and worshipped the beast and rejected Christ and rejected the royal gospel from the throne. What will happen? They shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb. Now we are dealing with symbols. These are not the realities. These are the symbols. Well, if these symbols are as dreadful as this, what, my dear friend, do you think the reality will be? Tormented where? Tormented in the presence 
of the Lamb. Imagine an eternity of that. In the presence of God's Lamb. Seeing Him. Viewing Him. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. No possible escape from Him. The agony of the conscience. In the presence of the Lamb. He sent his gospel to me. And I wouldn't believe it. I rejected it. I trampled on it. I despised it. And now I am here confronted with the Lamb. The Lamb who shed his blood. The Lamb slain to atone for sin. But now, now I cannot have him. Day after day, week after week, year after year, not ending, seeing the Savior you despised. Seeing the Lamb that you wouldn't have. To atone for your sin. You who are under the gospel. Do you see what's ahead of you? If you continue to reject Christ. And trample the blood of that lamb. Under your feet. The gospel that comes from the throne. Brings division. Some believe, they're saved. Some do not believe, and they are damned. Think of your own family. It's a gospel dividing your own family. Some are saved. Some will be damned. And they'll be damned in the presence of the Lamb himself. What an eternity. And that's only one aspect of the torments that await those who trample the gospel under their feet and refuse to believe it. What a message is going out here from the throne of God. Be ye reconciled to God. They have no rest day nor night. In Hebrews we read, there remaineth a rest for the people of God. But these have no rest because the gospel has brought about a division. They that believed, there's a rest remaining for them. They that reject the gospel, no rest day or night. What will it be for yourself? May God bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we do thank thee that we have the gospel. 
We rejoice in the divine eternal purpose of God that he devised a way by which guilty men could be reconciled to him. Oh, forbid that those who are under the gospel who hear it, who have it offered, salvation offered to them. Oh, may they understand what their latter end is to be if they will not believe it. Do thou apply thy word, pardon us, now receive us, for Christ's sake. Amen.